This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Rachel Maddow Show, The David Pakman Show, A Best of the Left Activism Update, The David Feldman Show, The Majority Report, Media Matters, The Young Turks, and The Onion News Network. And a note for our more sensitive listeners, this episode may cause you to wish to give up entirely on the American electoral system. In November, most of the smart money says President Obama should win the great state of New Mexico with relative ease. Polls show the president leading Mitt Romney in New Mexico by double digits. But eight years ago, in 2004, when George W. Bush was running for re-election, New Mexico was a battleground. And as part of the Republican effort in 2004 to win that swing state, then-Vice President Dick Cheney scheduled a big speech in Albuquerque just a few months before Election Day. The point, of course, was to encourage New Mexico voters to come out and hear their vice president's message. But if you wanted to be able to hear Dick Cheney that day, you had to jump through one really strange hoop. In order to get a ticket to attend that Dick Cheney event in 2004, you first had to sign a loyalty oath. An oath of loyalty not to the United States of America, but to George W. Bush. The oath read, I, full name, do hereby endorse George W. Bush for re-election of the United States. The grammatically challenged form warned anyone who signed this pledge that they were consenting to use and release your name by Bush Cheney as an endorser of President Bush. So what if you didn't want to sign it? What if you were a voter who just wanted to hear what your vice president had to say? Too bad. No loyalty oath, no ticket. A couple of months later, in 2004, at a Republican event in Florida, a party official asked everybody in attendance to stand, raise their right hands, and recite, again, a pledge of allegiance to George W. Bush. Not to the country, but to that one person. In this loyalty oath, voters were told to say, I care about freedom and liberty. I care about my family. I care about my country. Because I care, I promise to work hard to re-elect George W. Bush as President of the United States. What do you think would happen if Democrats asked voters to stand, raise their right hands, and literally pledge allegiance to Barack Obama? But even after the Bush-Cheney team left office, loyalty oaths to specific Republican politicians have kept popping up with kind of surprising frequency. I know it sounds strange, but it's true. Uh, just three months ago, in April, the Kansas Republican Party told every Republican in the legislature to sign a loyalty oath to their legislature's Republican leadership. Then two weeks later, at the national level, members of the Republican National Committee were invited to a private meeting with Mitt Romney in Arizona. This was before he secured the nomination. But in order to attend that meeting, RNC members were told they had to sign an oath pledging their loyalty to Mitt Romney in writing. This is not just pledging that you do to uh, say you really support your party. Both parties occasionally try to get people to swear to that in terms of participating in open primaries and stuff like that. But what the Republicans have grown really comfortable with is rather pledging an oath to a particular Republican politician by name. I pledge allegiance to Mitt Romney. Perhaps the most striking one of these was reported a few days ago in Massachusetts, where the state Republican Party has frankly seemed a little flummoxed about what to do with all the Ron Paul supporters who took over the Massachusetts delegation to the National Republican Convention. I mean, yeah, Massachusetts may be Mitt Romney's home state, but the Ron Paul folks took that delegation over just as easily as they took it over in Minnesota and Nevada and Iowa and all the other places they have done that this year. The Ron Paul takeover in Massachusetts 
kind of ruined Republican Party plans. I mean, they're really excited to have one of their own as the party's presidential nominee. The state's Republican leaders in Massachusetts wanted to send as their delegation this big group of big shots and candidates and former elected officials on to Tampa cheering on the former Massachusetts governor, Mitt Romney. But those plans went all pear-shaped when it came time to actually choose the Massachusetts delegates. Because it was the Ron Paul disciples who actually showed up and did the work and got the votes and won the slots. So what's the Massachusetts Republican Party to do? How can they replace these Ron Paul revolution no goodniks with real Republicans? Two words. Loyalty oaths. For the first time ever, the Massachusetts State Republican Party distributed affidavits to their own convention delegates demanding that they swear under penalty of perjury that they would support Mitt Romney's presidential nomination. Take that, Ron Paul supporters! Sure enough, the tactic worked. Some of these delegates were so horrified at what the state party was asking them to do that they said no. And that was how the state Republican Party cut some of the Ron Paul folks out of the state delegation by using a pledge of allegiance to Mitt Romney. According to the Boston Globe, quote, an affidavit is never mentioned in the Republican Party's rules for selecting delegates and has never been required of delegates in the past. But no time like the present, right? Yes, you young people who decided to get engaged in public affairs for the first time, you may have gone through the legitimate process and worked hard and got the votes and earned a slot on your state's convention delegation, but you weren't what the party had in mind. So, loyalty oath. Pledge allegiance to the dear leader or get out of the way for those who will. It's inspiring, right? We talked last week or the week before, I think it was last week, about Mitt Romney being asked four times by, uh, by Bob Schieffer during an interview, will you or will you not repeal the Obama immigration executive order? And Mitt Romney didn't answer. And it got me thinking, how many other issues are there that we can find that Mitt Romney just won't take a position on? And I have seven to present to you, Lewis. I'm ready. Will you allow the presentation? I will allow this. Okay. Number one. Uh, Romney won't say, as I said, whether he would undo the Obama decision via executive order to end the deportations of dream-eligible immigrants. That's number one. Number right. two, Romney will not say whether he'd support the Paycheck Fairness Act. Number three, Mitt Romney will not specify which tax loopholes he'd close. That's a favorite of Republicans, right? Mm -hmm. Saying you will close the ta tax loopholes that should be closed, but you're not going to over-regulate but he won't say which tax loopholes he'll close. I'm sure he'll have a special committee, much like Herman Cain, once he is the president, to figure out what he needs to do. Right. To figure out uh, the, the least uh, effective ones to close. Mitt Romney, of course, number four, says he'll eliminate federal agencies that are superfluous or extraneous. Of course, he won't say which those are. Number five, Mitt Romney won't say whether he supports the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. As we played the audio, I think it was last week, of Sam Stein from Huffington Post asking during a conference call, does Romney support the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act? 
and after a six-second pause, a very painful six-second pause, they said, we'll get back to you, Sam. Uh, number six, Mitt Romney won't say whether he'd support full reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act. He's not, he's not committing to that. He's not saying he would. And number seven, Romney won't say whether he'd eliminate the carried interest tax break for private equity partners. That one might maybe hit a little too close to home for him, don't you think? I'm sure if we dug a little deeper, we'd find other examples. Oh, there's definitely more. Yeah. I just figure seven is just a nice number. Seven's good. Lucky, yeah. lucky number. Now, rest assured, ladies and gentlemen, Mitt Romney, if, one of, if something that Obama does ends up being unpopular, Romney would absolutely do the exact opposite. There's no doubt about that. Unless it ends up being the right decision in retrospect, like bailing out General Motors, then, of course, not only would Mitt Romney have done the same thing, Mitt Romney actually gave the idea of doing it to Barack Obama. It's a win-win for him. It is, yeah. And oh, the, Except the health care mandate, where it's actually true that Obama, at least in part, was influenced by what Mitt Romney did. In that case, Romney had nothing to do with what President Obama did. No question about it. Well, it depends on if you ask him. Realistically, he'll end up just taking several conflicting positions about all seven of these things. You know, it seems to be... Not taking a stance on something seems to be working. If, if, <laughs> if, if nobody knows what side of an issue you're on... Can they really hold it against you? Right. Is that an actual strategy that's being employed here? Maybe it is. Or taking every side of an issue. We've seen him do that, too. Honestly, though, I am concerned. Romney's going to win, isn't he? He's, I, I, Romney's going to be the next president. I don't think so. Why do you think that? It, you know, I don't know. I, I really don't know. There's no way he should be. I, it, it's been a while since we saw someone that should really not be president so strongly, really since George W. Bush, I guess. Well, maybe it hasn't been that long. I just get the sense that something's going to happen between voter caging, voter ID laws, confusion on jobs numbers, people not knowing what on earth is going on, that this guy's going to win. Well, we haven't seen many attack ads yet. They're just starting to come out. Right. We know that they work. They work. They're incredibly effective. And the, the, the debates, I don't see how uh, Romney could come out favorably in the debates. That's what I thought with the Obama-McCain debates. I was like, he's going to crush them. This is going to be amazing. And then neither of them really wanted to engage the other. And it ended up being pretty boring vanilla. I would add something else. In 2000, Bush v. Gore, I remember before the debates, I was thinking there's absolutely no way that Bush is going to come out of the, the debates and people are going to think that he won. And every single debate, people thought he performed better. Well, not everyone. Obviously, there were two different, completely competing positions on what happened in the debates. People couldn't agree on what happened. For us, you know, Gore was clearly the more intelligent, more articulate, and smarter person to be president. But other people thought Bush was great, and I think that's going to happen here, too. Maybe I am just giving uh, the American people too much credit. Well, you, we know you've been guilty of that before, Lewis. Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do If it's a crime then I'm guilty Guilty of loving you Maybe I'm wrong dreaming of you Dreaming a lonely night through If it's a crime then I'm guilty Guilty of dreaming of you Welcome to the Best of the Left Activism Update. My name is Lauren, and I'm the activism czar at bestoftheleft.com. Victory Fund, found at victoryfund.org. Victory Fund's mission is simple, 
to change the face and voice of America's politics and achieve equality for LGBT Americans by increasing the number of openly LGBT officials at all levels of government. Since 1991, the Victory Fund has helped thousands of openly LGBT candidates win elections to local, state, and federal offices. But even today, in 2012, Tammy Baldwin and others who openly identify as LGBT continue to make up a disproportionately small minority of Congress and Senate legislatures. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender office holders are our clearest and most convincing champions for true equality. As leaders in government, they become the face and voice of a community. They also challenge the lies of extremists and speak authentically about themselves and their families. When the Victory Fund was established in 1991, there were 49 openly LGBT elected or appointed officials. Today there are more than 500. Here are some statistics found from the Victory Fund's endorsement of candidates in 2010. The total number of Victory endorsed candidates were 164. Total Victory endorsed winners, 106. That's a 65% win rate. But sadly, right now, five states still have no openly LGBT elected officials at any level of government. So here's what you can do. At Victory Fund, there are many ways to get involved. On their website, there is a list of current candidates you can choose to support. Likewise, you can also find who's running near you in order to offer on-the-ground support. There are also a slew of internships and career opportunities available, along with many events and programs dedicated to helping this cause. Lastly, there's a section that gives tangible advice and encouragement for those who wish to run themselves. It takes courage and determination to run for political office, and even more so to run as an openly LGBT candidate. In your pursuit of public office, you must run smarter campaigns, raise more money, and fight harder for visibility and support than your opponents. Victory Fund claims to understand these challenges and wants to set the bar high both for their candidates and their organization. So for once and for all, let's help make our democracy an accurate portrayal of our diverse population. So please go to victoryfund.org to help support your candidates. This is especially true if you happen to live in Alaska, Mississippi, North Dakota, South Dakota, or Kansas, where there has never been an openly LGBT official elected. This has been a Best of the Left activism update. For more information about the links mentioned in this segment, please see the show notes at bestoftheleft.com. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as five $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Here's my prediction. Okay. And I will move to Costa Rica with Rush Limbaugh well, if I- I'm wrong. <laughs> Well, Glenn I, I, Greenwald lives there, so or he he lives. He lives in, in Brazil. He, he lives, lives in, in Brazil. Brazil. Yeah. Here is my prediction, and I am a hundred percent convinced of this. I think the media hates Romney. I think the Republican Party yes. hates Romney. I think the media, as much as we hate the media, I think they've woken up 
and realized they were wrong. They gave Bush a pass. A pass. A pass. I don't think they're capable of asking Romney tough questions. What they're going to do is fight a proxy war against whomever Romney nominates for vice president. Whomever Hmm. Romney nominates will be treated worse than Sarah Palin. They will find stuff on Rubio, Portman, Hmm. Kasich. It doesn't matter who he picks. The if group, he picks Chris Christie, I mean, he's going to be a huge target. <laughs> Whoever he picks. <laughs> and it's probably going to be somebody who? Who's this guy? They, they have to find somebody whom we never heard of. Really? Well, I mean, if they go Chris Christie, it's because they're a big tent party. That's what I <laughs> He's a large man. Nobody, <laughs> nobody holds up. No Republican candidate holds up to scrutiny. Look at who. Well, then maybe would he pick like Tim Pawlenty or someone like that who just seems like he's bland and doesn't have any. uh, All these guys, all these guys in the Republican Party are dirty. Who's the one guy that they wanted to run for for president? Mitch Daniels. Mitch Daniels. Why wouldn't he be his running mate? Because if you're a Republican, and this is not biased, this is a fact. If you're a Republican politician. You are filthy. You are lousy. You are la- I'm, I'm being serious. You are lousy with money from the oil and the tobacco lobbyists. And if people are looking, they will find stuff on you. They are filthy. And you saw it in the Republican debates. These guys who ran were all repulsively dirty. They were repotted Spiro Agnews, mm-hmm. each and every one of them. So he's going to have to pick an unknown mm-hmm. and hope that between... Yeah, August, nobody gets and that's know. why Romney was able to win the nomination, too, is because all of the other candidates... You know, in the primary, when they they would have their moment of, oh, Herman Cain is on top. (laughs) They all had their moment, every one of them, of like being the front runner. And the minute anyone got information about Uh, them, they were like, oh, boy, I forgot. That's right. And and that's why they went with an unknown. Palin was an unknown. Mm. Nobody knew anything about her. The same way Nixon went with Spiro Agnew. Uh, Eagleton. Eagleton. Well, yeah, that's a little different. But yeah. what, what what I'm saying is they're going to have to say, let's get somebody who nobody knows anything about and will keep it secret between now and November. But they can't. And there's a group think in the media right now. I guarantee you they're saying, look, we can't go after Romney. That'll make us look biased. They find one thing about Marco Rubio that will be blown. Even I will. I know I'm going to be sitting there in September going, OK, look. All right, he killed five hookers, but I think they're they're overreacting. I mean, you know, there are other there's mm. there are other things to talk about besides the five hookers. I, I think they're I think they're going to pick Chris Christie just because you know no. he can he can attract he attracts voters by gravity. <laughs> he's he's a big person, yeah. is what you're saying. Yes, you, and you know what, and and there, but you know what, he's too liberal though. I think because he he's not against gun control, although he is against portion control. But. <laughs> <laughs> there was protesters occupying his pants. <laughs> you know that they mistook it for a sausage tent. You know, I don't. And he watch- came out for the uh, the stand your ground round law. 
law, which yeah. is just weird. Yeah. As you know, I get all my information from the newspapers. Are you? I don't watch television. Is he? Is he? Does he have a weight problem? Is this? <laughs> it's a well. His his campaign slogan when he ran for governor was Chris Christie. It's a glandular condition. <laughs> they are. I guarantee you, whoever he nominates, the media is going to they're going to say he had four months to pick somebody and this is what he came up with and they'll take it easy on romney all mm. the way through election day but his vice i pity whoever he picks to be his vice president maybe he'll pick a hispanic and he'll go crazy but i don't think marco rubio is going to be the guy well i don't think marco but rubio I think it's, qualifies it's, it's as over hispanic. you know i really again i think barack obama successfully triangulated and uh, i think it's all over i think you except know except for the fact that they could end up buying the election they say they could it. they could steal it so they uh, did you hear well, what about that guy in pennsylvania david who said that we we have they passed their voter id law so now we've won the state for romney did you hear about that yeah. no yeah yeah that actually happened mm. so who was that guy he was some kind of he was like a state legislator yeah so um so that's what so they're suppressing the vote and i think barack that if they do lose like they you know they, they'll mm. do a, they'll do a loss like uh, like uh, al gore did mm. you know like and they just won't fight for it enough and they're they're not they're letting this kind of stuff happen mm. way too much they should have been out way out in front of this a year ago right but you know what i think actually that if if there was a situation in November that was, say, you know, exactly like uh, Gore and Bush in Florida, uh, and if if you put Barack Obama in the Al Gore spot in that situation, and 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 as an incumbent, I think that that there there will be a really there would be a really strong uh, move on on the Democrats and on Barack's part to to not let that stand the way that Al Gore did. Yeah, and, uh, I, I hope so. Because I think there'll also be the outrage, already the, present. the outrage of the country that's maybe starting to like having health care and all that. Yeah. You know, I hope. Yeah. Well, you know what? Can I want to say this? That the plan is already way more ten percent more popular than it was the day before the the ruling. Right. So the ruling gave it momentum, and now people are starting to discover what's in it, like me even. Mm. You know, and people are, and they always say, you know, that the majority of people are against this plan. Well, they don't tell you this part that the half of those people who are against it are against it because they don't think it goes far enough. Right. So they'd leave out that. It's a pretty important, uh, you know, they, there's lies, damn lies, and statistics. And that's one of those ways people can totally lie using a statistic by saying that the majority of Americans are against the Affordable Care Act. And they're, and they're, and yeah. Because they presented as if they're against the Affordable Hair, the because, Care Act because they don't want affordable, affordable care. care. Yeah, I yeah. want affordable hair. How do I, <laughs> are hair transplants covered in this? So Bain Capital, it appears that Obama is gaining traction in the swing states by hammering Mitt Romney on Bain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Holding him accountable yeah. for the crimes against our economy. Well, so, so Romney can't run on his business record or, or his, his or his gov being governor record. Right. He's got nothing and even to the run Olympics on. was, you know, he went and he got he got money from the government and, and mm -hmm. things yeah. for the Olympics. So he can't he's got nothing to run on and Barack Obama now can run on his health care plan I, that I think people are for. Now, today, David Korn, one of the great journalists, he writes for Mother Jones, tells us that when Romney was running Bain, he invested in a medical waste firm, and one of their chief responsibilities, and oh, they yeah. were the biggest medical waste firm in America when it came to disposing of aborted fetuses. Ah! <laughs> 
Yes, yep. but Romney uh, made money from that from conception. So. <laughs> <laughs> and in his defense, he would stand over the dumpster and convert each fetus to, to Mormonism. Mormonism. <laughs> that's, that's, I mean, how do you... It's, it's the kind of thing, when you look at Romney... You know, George W. Bush, when he was running for re-election, we all knew he was the worst president in the history mm -hmm. of modern American politics. Mm. That was before Katrina. Yeah. He but was the have... worst president in modern American history starting in 1776. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think there was somebody in the Articles of Confederation time who was... Isn't that neat? Uh, but I, I think Romney, <laughs> I, I, you know, I am a Democrat, mm -hmm. and I will hate whoever the Republicans put up against Obama. But is Romney so bad he's great? Are we overlooking? If, if this guy is all over the map on everything, by September, are we going to have independents say, well, he's a pragmatist? He's, he's a, he's a, well, he can't, he, he is a pragmatist. You know, the fact that he got that health care passed in, um, in Massachusetts yeah. shows that he's capable of, of governing and he's capable of being a moderate. But he had to throw that all away, and now he's owned by the by the extreme. Yeah, and the Republican right Party has changed. And that. other people can say, well, you know what? If he gets elected, he won't be beholden to uh, to the right wing, which is implausible to me. But he can never say that. Right. He can't actually. He can't really shake that etch a sketch the way he wants to, because he can't come out and say. You know, if you elect me, uh, you know I'm gonna I'm gonna make all these things happen because he's following the strict r extreme right wing uh, talking, and he can't he can't go away from that. Scoffed at the prophet's omens that said I would live to learn that you can't get away from it. No, you can't get away. No, you can't get away from. Florida, Rick Scott is purging eligible voters from Florida's rolls. That never happens in Florida. That never happens. They are purging 182,000 voters. Now, we know they never get it wrong in Florida, except for every election. 182,000 voters they are purging for being non-citizens. They are using an outdated driver's license database, which I am sure, once we get the full accounting of how this process went, we'll see... It was probably not even a, a proper database. Their, their methodology was probably all screwed up. The mandate was probably lose more than you save. But plenty of legal U.S. citizens who should be allowed to vote wound up on the purge list. In Miami-Dade County, 1,638 people were flagged by the state as non-citizens. Yet at least, at least, they haven't been able to check all of them. 
359 people provided the county with proof of citizenship, and another 26 people were identified by the county as U.S. citizen. That's a very, very poor yield. So one quarter of people, now you've got to put yourself in this situation. You may get a notice, you may not. One quarter of the people said to be ineligible either checked to see that they were, uh, make sure that they were not disenfranchised, or got a notice and acted upon it and showed that they were <clears throat> actual legitimate voters. How many of you have received uh, a, a letter from the state and never opened it? How many of you have called up to make sure that you are registered and that you haven't been kicked off the voter rolls? Well, at least one quarter of the people who, got, who were put on this ineligible list did and found that they were eligible. So what, what's the real number here? Is it 50%? Did they disenfranchise 90,000 people? Only 45,000 people? 140,000 people? How many people? And then how many of those people who were not properly registered, let's just go by this figure from uh, this county, 130,000 or 120,000, how many of them would have attempted to vote? None. This is the way the Republicans are going to try and win this election. By disenfranchising voters. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestofleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. Nonpartisan, highly respected, civic-minded do-gooderism is back in the state of Florida. The League of Women Voters of Florida and Rock the Vote announced today that they are ready to start up voter registration drives again in the Sunshine State. Woohoo! Both groups had stopped holding voter registration drives there after Florida's Republican Governor Rick Scott signed a new law last year that treated people who run voter registration drives as potential felons. In some cases, it threatened to make them felons by virtue of their voter registration efforts. If, for example, it took you anything over 48 hours to return to the state somebody's filled out form, you would be treated by the state of Florida as a criminal and threatened with steep fines, among other punishments. 
These good government groups will be able to start registering voters again thanks to a ruling by a federal judge last week who struck down key parts of Rick Scott's new Make It Harder to Register to Vote law. The judge called that 48-hour deadline, for example, harsh and impractical. He said in his ruling, quote, the short deadline coupled with substantial penalties for noncompliance make voter registration drives a risky business. If the goal is to discourage voter registration drives and thus also to make it harder for new voters to register, then the 48-hour deadline may succeed. But if the goal is to further the state's legitimate interests without unduly burdening the rights of voters and voter registration organizations, then 48 hours is a bad choice. In other words, if Rick Scott was hoping to make it harder for new voters to register, then this new law is totally the right way to go. But in terms of the state's legit interests, the judge says, yeah, no. So the 48-hour deadline part of this law uh, is now being blocked. And the League of Women Voters and Rock the Vote are getting back to the business of helping people get registered to vote in the crucial state of Florida. That is thanks to a judge and no thanks to the state government. But in the meantime, another voter rights issue in the state of Florida has attracted attention and potentially intervention now from the feds. Governor Scott has pushed for a major effort to purge the state's voter registration rolls this year, an effort he has said is aimed at kicking people who are not eligible to vote off the voting rolls. As part of that effort, Governor Scott's administration put together a purge list of more than 2,600 Florida voters they had identified as non-citizens who should be removed from the registration rolls. The problem is that local elections officials found the list to be riddled with inaccuracies. Quote, the state-produced list of nearly 2,700 suspected non-citizen voters was generated with some outdated data, targeting hundreds of actual citizens who are lawful voters. So far, no one has been purged who has not admitted that he or she is a non-citizen. That was from the Miami Herald yesterday. Today, the Orlando Sentinel reported on the statistical infrequence of voter fraud in the state, which, remember, is the whole reason Rick Scott claims he needs to purge the voter rolls ahead of this year's presidential election. In the Orlando Sentinel, the quote is, Notwithstanding the concerns of Scott and Republican legislators, state records show that voter fraud simply hasn't been a problem for the past decade. One longtime county election supervisor told the paper that fraud simply isn't much of an issue. Quote, you are more likely to walk out of your office and get hit by a bolt of lightning. Late last week, the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department told Florida to stop purging voters off its registration rolls, saying the purge appeared to violate the Voting Rights Act as well as the National Voter Registration Act. That letter was sent to the state of Florida on Thursday of last week. The Justice Department gave the state until today to respond to that letter, and today Governor Rick Scott's administration did respond. They are not agreeing to the Justice Department's request that the state stop their quest to kick people off the state's voter rolls. They say they respectfully disagree with the Justice Department on the whole it's illegal allegation. They say they refuse to stop the voter purge process. They accuse the federal government of being the one who's really violating federal law here. The old I rubber your glue tactic. And they are demanding a response from the Justice Department to their own letter by Monday. The state of Florida, in other words, appears to be sort of gleefully picking a fight here, launching an inevitable standoff with the feds on the issue of kicking people off its voter rolls this year. And given that this is Florida we're talking about, and it's this time of year, in this year, this fight, this standoff that has begun has really big political implications. Here is a wild card, though. Rick Scott's administration can't actually directly kick voters off the rolls. They're not in charge of the rolls. 
All they can do is send purge lists to the counties, to county election supervisors, and tell the people who work at the county level that they're supposed to kick voters off the rolls. It is up to the county, to the county officials, to actually do the purging, because they're responsible for elections in their counties. And lately, the county officials in Florida are not much in a mood for what the state is telling them to do. On Friday, local elections officials in Florida announced that they would be discontinuing the state-directed voter purge because they found the state's data to be flawed. Oh, and also there was that whole thing where the Justice Department said what the state is doing is illegal. The president of the state's Association of Supervisors of Elections told the Palm Beach Post on Friday that the Justice Department's letter and mistakes that the county elections officials had found in the state's purge list, frankly, made the purge undoable. Quote, there are just too many variables with this entire process at this time for supervisors to continue. Rick Scott can thumb his nose at the Justice Department, but he cannot force local elections officials in Florida to carry out his voter purge. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Danny Herrera. Fox News is spinning a recent move by the U.S. Department of Justice to block the purging of registered voters in Florida. The U.S. Justice Department telling Florida it needs to halt its efforts to prevent voter fraud, but the state now fighting back against Attorney General Eric Holder and defying the order. The search of the voter list turned up over 180,000 registered voters who may not be U.S. citizens and therefore are ineligible to vote. Attorney General Holder spoke with African-American leaders last week about the significance of new voter ID laws, which disproportionately affect minorities. But Fox News saw it in a different light. Florida says it has a duty to make sure only eligible voters are allowed to vote. But the DOJ, however, says the efforts are discriminatory and violates voting right, the Voting Rights Act. Some of Eric Holder's harshest critics say he's trying to boost the minority turnout in the November election by inciting racism. I have a job to do to defend the right of legitimate voters, uh, citizens of our state. We've been asking for the Department of Homeland Security's database save for months, and they haven't given to us. Twelve years ago, the presidential election turned on a 537-vote margin in Florida. Thousands of voters, we later learned, had misunderstood their ballots. Thousands more were turned away from the polls in error. Florida had failed one of the foundational rights we have as citizens, the right to vote. So after that embarrassment, you'd think they'd be pretty careful today, right? Yeah, you'd think that. Florida's Republican Governor Rick Scott announced today that his administration is suing the federal government in hopes of forcing the Department of Homeland Security to help him out with a big election year purge of Florida voters. Mr. Scott has said the purpose of the purge is to remove non-citizens from Florida voter rolls. But when Scott's administration sent a purge list to county election supervisors, those local officials found it to be riddled with inaccuracies. The Miami Herald reported the list was produced with, quote, some outdated data and that it, quote, targeted hundreds of actual citizens who are lawful voters. Late last month, the Justice Department warned the state to stop the purge, saying it would appear to violate both the Voting Rights Act and the National Voter Registration Act, at which point the county election officials charged by the Rick Scott administration with carrying out the purge told the state they weren't going to do it anymore. 
Last week on this show, Rachel spoke with the Republican election supervisor from Volusia County, Florida, about her decision to halt the voter purge in her county. So it looked like the, ro the list was bogus, if you will. It was outdated. Of the 15, 10 have never voted in Volusia County ever. Um, so I just quietly put the list aside. There is a federal law in the NVRA, the National Voter Registration Act, that says in federal elections, you cannot change, with few exceptions, you cannot change a person's voter registration history within 90 days of a federal election. So we aren't going to do anything with it, no matter if Governor Scott says do this. Um, we just can't do it. It's against the law for me to do that. But even after the warning from the Justice Department, even as local election officials, including many from Scott's own party, refused to carry his big election year voter purge, Rick Scott's administration has plowed forward, promising to continue the purge. This is not a time to wait till after the elections. It's time to act now to make sure that individuals that are voting are eligible to vote and that our voting rolls are accurate and clean here in Florida. And we plan to do that. That was Florida's Secretary of State on Friday doing the rhetorical equivalent of thumbing his nose at the Justice Department. And today, Governor Scott announcing the lawsuit he hopes will force the federal government to help with the great Florida voter purge of 2012. But remember that part where the Justice Department said the Florida voter purge violated federal law? Yeah, uh, it turns out they were serious about that. The Justice Department also announced a lawsuit today, saying they plan to sue to stop Florida from carrying out the purge, warning the state one more time to cut it out. Quote, please immediately seize this unlawful conduct. It's about as stark as it gets. As for Florida's argument that the Fed should be helping them with the purge, that they've been denied access to a homeland security database that is crucial to their voter purging process, the Justice Department says the database wouldn't help anyway. And the sloppy, error-prone purge is sloppy and error-prone because that's the way Rick Scott's administration has carried it out. Quote, your claim that the Department of Justice and Department of Homeland Security have worked in concert to deny Florida access to the SAVE program database is simply wrong. The significant problems you are encountering in, administer in administering this new program are of your own creation. Your program has critical imperfections, which lead to errors that harm and confuse eligible voters, especially the program is based on information collected sometimes years ago from driver's license applications. The information is often going to be outdated as a number of persons will subsequently have become citizens and lawfully registered to vote. Your data appeared to be faulty in other ways that have resulted in native-born citizens, including a decorated World War II combat veteran, being sent letters demanding they affirmatively prove their citizenship. We are aware that one county election supervisor who reviewed a state-provided list of over 1,000 potentially ineligible voters determined the list had a significant error rate, and she advised you that further youth use of the list would potentially disenfranchise eligible voters based on an inaccurate list. So, it's not clear at this point whether and how the Rick Scott administration might continue to carry out their election year voter purge, but it is clear they're determined to try to carry it out, no matter what. And in an election year, in the very state that decided the election 12 years ago on a razor-thin, error-ridden margin, you might think they'd know better. Indeed, the scary thought is they do know better. And that's why the deeply unpopular Scott administration is trying to kick these voters off the rolls.
from time to time, I believe the Young Turks have told Democrats and President Obama, hey, you know, you might want to actually go for a progressive position. It might actually help you with the electorate. I know that the normal assumption in Washington and the Obama administration is, oh my God, don't be progressive. Don't be, oh no, they'll steal. Cost yourself independent voters is not the right way to go. Well, uh, it's interesting because when elections come around, all of a sudden, everybody in Washington is a progressive, certainly President Obama. And, you know, he went and said that he's in favor of gay marriage. By the way, then we found out the numbers are actually uh, trending in that direction and have now tipped over in that direction. And all of a sudden, he's on the right side by being progressive. Okay. Now, on the issue of immigration, we'd been saying, hey, you know, can you push for the DREAM Act? And, you know, he says he tried back in 2010. The Republicans did block it. That part is true. But he said, oh, I can't do anything. It turns out that's not true. He could have done an executive order all along. He did. But, hey, we'll take it. Better late than never. And guess what happened? The polls are in. So on President Obama's policy of saying if you're under 30 years old and you came over before you were 16 and you've been here five years and you graduated high school or you served in the military, we're not even going to give you citizenship, but we're going to say you get a two-year break where you can legally work in the country. Here's what the results are. 64% agree. 30% disagree. Now, this is on the one issue where progressives don't always score that well. Depends on the policy matter. But even here, when they did the progressive position, giant, crushing victory. Well, when you break it down uh, further, well, it's unsurprising that Republicans overall oppose it. They're at 56% opposing, right? But even that's not that high. And Democrats overwhelmingly support it, 86%. That's not surprising. The last number is the interesting one. By a two-to-one margin, basically, independents saying, we really like this policy. So, but wait a minute. I was told for three and a half years by the Obama administration and every dumb pundit in Washington that if you actually do progressive positions, well, you would lose independent voters. It turns out independent voters love progressive positions. In fact, let me give you one other uh, stat that's not related to this, and then we'll come back for one more important part of this story. On the issue of Bush tax cuts, right now, Democrats are in the middle of folding on that. There's a new article out today about, oh, well, you know, the Republicans, they got us over a barrel on this thing. I think maybe we should extend the Bush tax cuts for a while. Over the barrel? How? What are you talking about? First of all, you hold all the leverage because the Bush tax cuts run out normally at the end of this year. Second of all, if you ask the American people, do you know what percentage favor a permanent extension of all the Bush tax cuts? Which is, by the way, Mitt Romney's official position. 18%. Whoa! The country is massively progressive. All those Bush tax cuts, only 18% support extending them permanently. When you say, hey, how about just extending them one year? Only 26%. No, they don't want it. They don't want the Bush tax cuts. They know that it favors the wealthy. They're not in favor of that because the country is fundamentally progressive. And during elections, all of a sudden, of course, the Democratic Party realizes that now President Obama has made it one of his central planks, although he didn't do it in his first term, that, my God, I won't extend those Bush tax cuts for people making over $250,000. I hear it's polling well. Yes, that's what we've been telling you. Can you imagine how well you would be polling? If you actually did those progressive things, rather than promise them right before an election, and look at the immigration issue. You do that, and it turns out, yes, the people are on your side. And what's more interesting, and this is the last interesting fact about uh, this poll, is that once you do something and you lead, 
actually more people follow. And the poll numbers for that issue and for you overall all increase. So I want to give you a quote from Loretta Price, who's 65 years old, lives in Florida. And she said, I thought this was so telling, quote, at first I was really against it. But after sitting down and thinking about it, a lot of kids here are good kids. I think it was the right thing to do. Well, you look at that. What happens when you actually show leadership? People rethink their positions sometimes, go, hey, you know what? You're right. I, I know one of those immigrant kids. They're a good kid. Nah, you're right. Let's go in that direction. Wow. Gee, who's been telling the Obama administration, for Christ's sake, will you lead? Will you act strongly? Will you be progressive? It's not just good for policy. It's actually good for politics, too. Well, I hope they figured out we're right. Although I'm not convinced because right now, like I told you, the Democrats and the Obama administration thinking even if we win the election, right afterwards we'll do the grand bargain which largely agrees with Republican proposals. But of course, that's not based on the polls, that's not based on winning elections, that's after you win the election, you actually deliver for the guys who helped you win it, which are your donors. Of course, that's the reality in Washington. So all these polls are lovely and show you where the American people are, but they don't show you where our politicians are because our politicians don't give a damn about us. They care about the people funding their campaigns. Have I mentioned Wolfpack before? Do you, do you know that the website is wolf-pack.com? Is anybody aware of that? No? Okay, all right. Well, anyway, I'll give it a shot, wolf-pack.com. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. You're back on the front lines of election 2012. Obama's poll numbers among his Democratic base are way down. The reason, analysts suggest, liberal voters just want to see Obama sweat a little before they inevitably vote for him. Jason, fill us in. Yeah, Andrea, pretty interesting. Take a look at this. A full 63% of registered voters say they're undecided about who they're voting for. But when pressed with a second question, okay, but seriously, when it comes down to it, who are you really going to vote for? 89% say Obama. Well, but still, that lack of commitment has to be keeping the president up at night. Well, yeah, that's the whole point. I mean, Democrats are disappointed with the president's first-term performance. Basically, they want to make him suffer a little bit. Okay, Jason, let's see what some of those so-called undecided Democrats are saying. I don't know who I'm going to vote for. I've been seeing some real nice ads for Mitt Romney. We're flashy and sophisticated. Hit that, Obama? Honestly, I've never voted anything but Democrat my entire life, but I don't know about this year. 
How does it make you feel, Obama? It sounds like voters are really just getting yeah, back well, in for a very disappointing yeah, first you know, term. They've been pulling together all sorts of stunts just to screw this head. For instance, uh, they're, they're talking about this all-day jazz festival that they're going to attend on November 6th, pretending that they've forgotten about the election altogether. <laughs> okay, and Jason, how long do you think Obama's base is planning to yeah. torment him like Well, it's this? looking like it might be a while. I mean, there are even huh. rumors that at the Democratic National Convention, when they're about to announce Obama's name, they're yeah. actually going to call Dennis Kucinich's You're name. Kidding. I love this. He'll come out, pretend to accept the nomination. <laughs> Obama's just going to be himself. That's going to be so hilarious. Uh, wow. I, I mean, I have to say, all of this has got to be rattling the president, and indeed I think it is. He released a statement today saying, quote, listen, I know I haven't been the best president in the world, but I'm sorry and I really will do better. Just say you will vote for me. Say it. I'll do anything. I mean, would you believe that four well, years ago? Well, and we you know, here? look at this. The Obama yeah. 2012 team also unveiled this new campaign poster. God, I love that. That is <laughs> He's just on his so knees. pathetic. Ridiculous. Now, yeah. what about Biden? Doesn't he also have to be yeah. Nominated at the DNC? Yeah, uh, they've tried the same tactic with Biden. Didn't quite work. A DNC no, huh? chairperson, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, approached him. She said they were, quote, exploring their possibilities for vice president. <laughs> but uh, Biden just winked at her and said, all right, baby, why don't you call me when you get your head together? All right, Jason, thank you so much. Thanks, from the Andrew. 2012 Democra Grid, we'll be back with you later. It might feel good, it might sound a little something, but damn the game, if it don't mean nothing, what is game? Who got game? Where's the game in life? Behind the game, behind the game. I got game, she's got game, we got game, they got game, he got game. It might feel good, it might sound a little something, but the game if it ain't saying nothing. Something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. Very recently, June 19th, David Axelrod, uh, who's of course a senior campaign operative for President Obama and has been his senior political advisor throughout, was on C-SPAN. Let's find out if he learned any of the lessons about working with Republicans. My belief is that when the president wins in November, we're going to liberate these Republicans uh, of goodwill, that they're going to blink into the light of a bright new day, and they're going to turn to the Grover Norquist of the world, uh, frankly, as Jeb Bush has recently, and said, you know what, we did it your way. And that was a failure, a failure for the country and also a failure for the Republican Party. And now we're going to work together. There may be issues on which uh, we're going to fight and disagree because that's why we have two parties. But where we can agree, we're going to find that common ground. I think that uh, that is the message that his reelection will send. Really? Really? You think, oh, no, no. Man, they're on the precipice turning this thing around. Second term, boy, those Republicans are going to be very agreeable. But look, let's be fair now. If history is any guide, remember, uh, the Republicans were very tough on Bill Clinton in his first term. But in his second term, they impeached him. Oh, but it was a really serious issue about who had oral sex where. These clowns of the earth think that the Republicans are going to be easier on them, nicer to them, compromise more with them in the second term? And as I've told you before, it's not just Axelrod. He just happened to say it you know, within the last week. But President Obama said it over and over. He said very recently as well, I believe that if we're successful in this election, when, when we're successful in this election, that the fever may break because there's a tradition in the Republican Party of more common sense than that. That is simply not true. If you're talking about 1965, it might be close to true. If you're talking about 1975, it probably is true. 1985, again, we begin to have a conversation. If you're talking about today, <laughs> What tradition of common sense? On which planet? When did they ever compromise with you? Or when they did, when did they ever not use it against you? Come on, man. And then, of course, he also said, my hope, my expectation is that after the election, 
now that it turns out the goal of beating Obama doesn't make much sense because I'm not running again, then that we can start getting some cooperation again. Now look, final thing on this is that it's not that these guys are just the thickest people you've ever seen, like that an idea cannot penetrate their head even if they x-rayed it in. Even if they went through those TSA machines where you have to put your hands up like this, the idea still couldn't penetrate their thick heads. No, no, no. It's not that they're that dumb. It's that they want to do the deals where they pretend that they're on your side and the Republicans are against you and then they reach some sort of compromise. I've told you a million times in the lame duck session, even if President Obama wins, they're going to do a quote unquote grand bargain where they're going to give the house away to the Republicans. And they're going to say, oh, well, look, you see that? We did now that we, I won, they were willing to work with me a little bit. Yeah, that's after you agreed to everything they wanted, which is cutting Social Security, cutting Medicare, and cutting taxes for the rich and for corporations. President Obama's already announced that. Do you know that? That doesn't get any press either. He's already announced that he thinks the corporate rate should be reduced from 35% to 28%. He says he's going to take away some loopholes. Which ones? Hasn't named it, right? They're not going to take away that many loopholes. They're going to take away a couple of symbolic ones, like for the corporate jets, etc. And in essence, give a giant tax cut to corporations and then make the middle class pay for it. They're on the same team. Nobody's this stupid that could look at what happened in the last three and a half years and say, oh, no, no, I bet the Republicans are going to totally be on our side and on the side of the American people very soon. Come on. It's all a shell game they're playing on us so they can do their stupid grand bargain, which is going to be the greatest robbery in American history. Okay, by the way, if you weren't absolutely sure whether the Republicans are going to be tough or easy on President Obama in his second term, well, look at the word they have already started mentioning while they're quote-unquote not mentioning it. Let's go to the Senator John Kyle, Republican of Arizona. It looks to me like there's no backup from the federal government. So once you find that law okay, as the court did, um, go ahead and proceed, but you're going to proceed and you're going to have brick wall. How do you make the feds cooperate? The people need to react through the ballot box to turn out of office those people who are not doing their duty. Now, if it's bad enough and if there are uh, shenanigans involved in it, then of course impeachment is always a possibility, but I don't think at this point uh, anybody's talking about that. Except you just did. <laughs> so I'm not saying impeachment. You know how I say everyone's, well, I'm not saying anything, I'm just saying. So even if we lose, don't worry, we could still threaten them with impeachment for no reason whatsoever just to get them to cooperate with us. And you know what? Fair enough. Is there anything President Obama wouldn't do with the Republicans? Yeah, sure. So you beat him over the head. And you, if a liberal suggests something, you know, there's... How dare you? Get out of my office, you retarded liberal. Right? Uh, John Costa's impeachment or whatever? They say, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. Come on, it's fixed, man. It's fixed. Maybe I should stop doing the show. We figured it out, right? It's fixed. This is Allison from Erie, Colorado. While I agree that we may need to change the way we talk about privilege so that those who haven't experienced a lack of privilege can understand it better, I'm not entirely sure what I think about getting rid of the specifier. While the specifier may be confusing to some people, 
it can help describe the kind of privilege that one is talking about. Uh, for example, to speak from my own experience, I'm a bisexual woman with a disability, which means I don't have straight, male, or able privilege, but I'm also white, which means I have white privilege. So I guess that the issue I have with majority or dominant privilege in particular is that one can have more than one kind of privilege or one kind of privilege but not another. And this does not, this does affect people's lives and the way they interact with others. So I wanted to mention this to you and to other listeners so uh, maybe we can think about how to deal with this particular situation or maybe not. I don't know. We'll see. Thanks for the awesome show. Okay, bye. Hey, Jay, this is Jim from St. Augustine, your favorite conservative. I'm calling about your one of your recent shows. Not all religious people are bigots, but these people are. And uh, just many things that I, I found off about it, mainly the religious institutions you're using. I mean, I'm a canon. Uh, you know, the apostles' cousins, next-door neighbor of Christ. I mean, just these out-of-whack religions with no real moral compasses, religious compasses. Those are the examples you use for religious people. But that's fine if, you know, your whole goal is to, to bash Christianity and, and not view it in the real light. There are positives and negatives, but to go ahead and, you know, kind of dim that light and only focus on certain things. That's fine. That's your prerogative. Uh, I was just listening to Jimmy Dore show, chapter 18, and my favorite is they're talking about this preacher, talking about beating kids because they think they're gay and you know, no real Christian supports that. That's not Christianity is. But my favorite was they started making fun of the preacher about Bette Midler CDs and writing fan fiction for Glee. Obviously joking around, oh, he's obviously a closet homosexual. My favorite part about that is, you know, and I get this a lot of uh, from you leftists. Being gay is natural, it's okay, there's no reason to be bigoted. Oh, but hey, if you're a conservative, we're going to use homosexuality as a joke to demean you. If there's nothing wrong with it, if it's perfectly natural, um, why are they using it as an insult? And I get it all the time, and I hear it, and I find it offensive. Uh, I don't know where homosexuality comes from. And for people to say that they absolutely know, uh, it's just ridiculous. Uh, but it doesn't mean I hate anybody for, for who they are or what they are or sexual preference. Um, but for one side to say, no, this is completely natural, it's okay. And then in the same breath, to say, to use that as a, as a way to demean somebody, I find it completely offensive, right? And it's a double standard. Um, and you support it by playing it. I mean, it's, it's quite hypothetical, and it really takes away from your argument from any thinking, logical person. Um, well, that's it for me. Uh, have a good day. Uh, happy Fourth of July. Uh, God bless. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. I have a whole bunch of things I want to get to today, so I'm going to jump right in. Uh, a couple of responses to these voicemails. Uh, first of all, to Allison and her comments about uh, privilege and how we describe it. 
there's absolutely no disagreement uh, between what she said and and what I was intending to say before I was making the comment that if we rather than describing privilege to you know a person who's not familiar with the concept and, and you know doesn't quite understand rather than calling it white privilege or straight privilege or so on uh, describing it as majority privilege or uh, dominant privilege because those terms are less personal and uh, more easily understood and and I think should create less of sort of an instinctual backlash, uh, you know, from from anyone who thinks, well, like I'm white, but I, I didn't do anything to be this way, and that's not fair to, you know, understand that if you're part of a majority or a part of a dominant group, you're then inherently privileged, and and so I, I think that helps. But of course, I, I don't mean actually literally get rid of the specifier terms altogether. I, I really just meant. In those situations when you're trying to explain the concept to someone who's not familiar, that's a good way to open up the conversation because it, it uh, you know, it, it's an easy step through that door so that one – and then once people really understand the concept, then you move on and, and say, you know, and these are all the specifics and this is how it works in detail and so on. So total, total agreement there. Uh, secondly, I want I have bl- plenty of uh, responses to, uh, to Jim, the uh, conservative who – you know, I like that he's calling himself my uh, my favorite conservative because it turns out he's right. Uh, he I, I, he's a funny guy. He's been posting on Facebook and he's made me laugh out loud. Uh, literally, not just LOL, uh, fake laughing out loud. And so, uh, so a f- few responses. The clips used in in the episode he's referring to about the you know anti-gay uh, religious bigots. He says that those are you know bad examples of Christianity. And and so and that I was doing a bad job of, you know, giving examples of Christianity because these are such whack jobs that you know that they don't really represent anyone. And so my response to that is that I wasn't attempting to give examples of Christianity. I was trying to give examples of crazy extremists who use Christianity to be bigots. And he said that I'm sort of dimming the light on the conversation. And I think, no, 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 I'm not dimming the light on the conversation. I'm highlighting these crazy people just because it's it's a good thing to know that these people exist. Uh, it, it's certainly not meant to make it seem like those people are in the mainstream by any stretch, which is specifically why I named the episode what I did, that not all Christians are bigots, but these are. Secondly, he had questions about how progressive comedians can feel okay about uh, you know being accepting of homosexuality while also making jokes implying that conservatives were gay and using that as an insult. And I'm going to do my best to uh, explain this uh, to the best of my knowledge. I believe that when those jokes are made, those conservatives, you know, potential theoretical homosexuality is not actually the butt of the joke. Uh, That's not actually the uh, cause for scorn. It's the hypocrisy. And so those comedians are very accepting of homosexuality and all varieties of sexuality. And so they don't actually uh, want to tease those people for their sexuality. They're teasing them for their hypocrisy because it has become almost a meme for conservatives who are virulently anti-gay to actually be gay themselves and and for their own self-hatred to be the catalyst for their bigotry, and so uh, that it, it's a very, very standard thing for progressives uh, or you know anyone who's not 
a bigot like that to condemn those who uh, speak out against uh, equal rights while actually being in that minority group themselves, though closeted. That's what those jokes are getting at. I know that it's a nuanced, fine line. I, I don't think that those types of jokes have to appeal to everyone. Uh, you, you don't have to appreciate them or, or like those sorts of jokes. But I do think that that is the context for it and the intention behind them. So whether you laugh at them is one thing, but if you, you know being really offended by them, I don't think is appropriate because it, it's it's missing the context. Now, as long as we're talking about dissecting humor, I'm actually going to preempt a comment that I predict I would have gotten uh, about today's show about, you know, again, about comedy and those same comedians, Jimmy Dore, David Feldman, and, and those crew, um, because in, in today's episode, there were a bunch of jo jokes told uh, making fun of Chris Christie's weight, which is, uh, you know, very sizist or, you know, whatever the appropriate term for that is and should be very offensive to overweight people. It sort of implies that being overweight is inherently bad. And, uh, you know, so for those of you who remember, the last time there was a big, uh, you know, discussion about a joke from the Jimmy Dore show on Best of the Left, it was a big controversy, people were calling in about it. I ended up talking with Jimmy Dore on the phone, like discussing that joke. And at the time, as part of that discussion, I also asked him about the Chris Christie jokes. I was like, you know, I, like the Chris Christie jokes, they're, they're tough. I cannot help but laugh at them, but I always immediately feel like I shouldn't have. It feels like a you know, very uh, non-progressive thing to, uh, to laugh at jokes like that. So what justification do you guys have for making those jokes? And to be honest, I actually stumped him at first. He's like, oh, God, you know, I don't know. I, you might be right. Like, those might be bad jokes. Maybe we shouldn't tell them. But I feel like we had a reason, and I just can't think of it right now. And so he actually went, had a conversation with David Feldman about it, asked him, hey, you know, Dave, like, remind me, why are we allowed to tell those jokes about Chris Christie being fat? And so the reason they gave, and accept it or not, this is the explanation I got, uh, the reason they gave is that because Chris Christie is metaphorically gluttonous and he takes advantage of his job and he, you know, takes the helicopter to his kid's baseball game before, you know, he lands a hundred yards away and then takes a car from the helicopter to the field. Like because he is metaphorically gluttonous, it is then okay to make fun of him for being literally gluttonous or at least literally very overweight. So take that for what it's worth, I, you know, judge on your own, but that is the answer to the question I feel like would have inevitably come after having played those clips on this show. And and just know that like I'm sort of torn on it and like I said, I, I laugh at them and then I feel bad for them and, I, you know, I don't think that – well, I know that I and I'm pretty sure that none of those comedians actually think that being overweight is an inherently bad thing, but judge those on your own. So that's it for today. Thanks to everyone who supports the show by becoming a member or making a one-time donation. That is how the show survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and spreading the word of individual clips you particularly like uh, through your social networks. That can all be done through the website. To stay connected to the show between episodes, join up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name 
name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white, you took apart a picture that wasn't right.